You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Yes, it's a Monday, which means we talk to Dr. Chris Smith. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Always good to be with you, doctor. So we're going to jump straight into all of the magnificent questions that the listeners have for you. 011-830-702 is where you can give us a call. All of your science-related questions or send us a WhatsApp message or voice note 072-702-1702. Cynthia in Sandringham, hi. Hi. Thanks very much for taking my call. Um, Dr. Chris, I just want to know something puzzles me and I've noticed it amongst cats quite often. When I stroke a cat and I get treated to the whole tooth, the purring and the friendliness and so on, and all of a sudden it'll extend its um, a, a foot, claws out and scratch. And in fact, a friend of mine had blood drawn just a couple of days ago. Is this a warning from the cat that if you dare stop, that's what you'll get? <laughs> You know, there's an old saying that cats don't have owners, they have staff. And very much the engagement <laughs> with the cat is, is on the cat's terms. With dogs, dogs will follow you around and do whatever you want them to do, whenever you yeah. want them to do it. And you are very much their master. Cats, the equation is reversed. And I don't know why the cat chose to scratch you. It could have just been pure pleasure because, of course, when someone does something really nice to us, we arch mm. our back, you know, rub that bit. Yeah, that feels really wow. good. Get in there. And it could just be that the reflex on the part of the cat is just to stretch out and, and, and just claw. On the other hand, it could be that you weren't doing it well enough and the cat and was just sending you a covert message. You, you know, you, you need to keep the standards up here. Who do you think you are? Oh, well, okay. So it remains uh, very interesting. Oh, well, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cynthia in Sandringham. Ben in Kensington. Hi. Uh, hi, Doctor. Hi, reasonable. Sure, sorry. It's okay. Just say label. It's okay. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Yes, um, go ahead. I've got a question that doesn't seem like a science question, but uh, why do we lose so many socks? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and I think I've it's got because, an answer. Um, yeah, the doctor would have the, the, well, There's an army of three-legged people in the world these days. That's what we always say. Yeah. But what, the bigger question is, how do they manage to find themselves in isolation inside the duvet or the pillowcase? How do yeah. they do that? But actually, the, the answer to this one, I spoke to a mathematician called Colin Eastway, who he writes books about this kind of thing, believe it or not. And, and he made the point, it's, it's just standard statistics which is what do we tend to notice? Now, if you have a, a sock drawer which are full of identical black socks, you are not going to notice if one sock goes yes. adrift. Whereas if you have a confined organization, which is this sock goes with this sock, then more often than not when one goes missing, you're really going to notice. So the solution is simple. Uh, because everything vanishes from time to time or disappears or gets caught up or lost, whatever, just buy a sock drawer full of identical socks. And then you won't notice when one goes missing and you've solved the problem. And the odd sock, well, who cares? Uh, when it turns up, you match it up with another odd sock and they, and they match and they're a pair again, even though they weren't the original pair. But now, let's be honest, doctor. I mean, I, I, I've seen like memes online and I don't know how accurate it is. Don't washing machines like sometimes swallow socks? <laughs> like I well, saw somebody that oh, they claimed um, that opened up the machine and there were all these little socks like inside the machine. I've never seen that happen in a washing machine I've had. 
and we've got plenty of three-legged people in our household. So I think actually it's more likely that the, the dog walks off with them, the wind blows them away off the washing line, or you just lose them down the back of the sofa or down the back of the radiator. I've never seen a washing machine actually actively ingesting socks. That said, other interesting things do turn up in the filter from time to time. It's not impossible that a sock could get lodged in one of the nooks and crannies in a machine. All machines are different. But I think the odds are it's more likely that they're being lost elsewhere around the place just pin them together if you're really really concerned about them staying together and and it really does damage to your kind of comfort level if two <laughs> socks are pin them together and and then you know for a fact that 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 part of you that obsessive trait in you is going to be satisfied because they're never going to get apart from each other pin them together not when you're wearing them of course ben are you bothered about your socks is there like a serious issue in your household your socks can be a problem but I was thinking along the same track, Doctor. I was thinking that because you have a record, because there's two, you don't generally have a record yep. of T-shirts or, or other items. So I was thinking exactly. along the same lines. You know that you, you see one is missing because you have a record, but you misplace exactly, and you won't realize it, it stands out time. because it's absent. That's right. You notice it because yeah. it's missing. Mm. Yeah. That's a very good one, Ben and Kensington. Thank you so much for that question. On the WhatsApp line, a question says, Hi, Doctor. I've started drinking rooibos tea with senna leaves. It says not advisable for prolonged use. Why? Do you know, it's really funny. Uh, I was talking about rooibos, my favorite beverage, last night because uh, we have working on the Naked Scientist uh, South African with us at the moment, Robert. And, and we were, we're both lovers of rooibos, but not rooibos with senna. Senna is a laxative agent, and the bottom line, if you'll excuse the pun, I heard John Perlman drop a, a bit of a bad pun about batting earlier. Well, yes. that's the worst one, isn't it? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> the bottom line with Senna is that as with anything that changes your bowel habit, if things are wrong, they're usually wrong for a reason. And so prolonged use argues that whatever is causing the problem hasn't gone away. And so you shouldn't look to a medicine bottle to solve that problem. You should look to other reasons. You should look to your diet and you should look to making a positive change in your diet. And I don't mean swallowing senna. I mean, as in increasing the amount of soluble fiber in your diet, which you can do by increasing the amount of fruits and vegetables that you eat, for example, which will a reinforce your health in other ways. But it will mean that you have more motility more softness and this helps to achieve basically what senna does because senna is a pro-motility agent if you are needing to rely on these things indefinitely that that could argue that there's something else that's wrong especially if you were fine for years nothing else has changed and suddenly you're not fine you might find that something else that can be fixed is causing this and that's why they caution don't do this indefinitely because it might hide an underlying problem that could be fixed in a better way. But um, there's nothing, I think, otherwise toxic about combining your favorite beverage with something to help you go a bit more easily on the odd occasion when things get bunged up. Yeah. Okay. That makes complete sense. I hope you take note of that to the unsigned WhatsApp that came through. Chris in Johannesburg. Hi. Hi, how are you? And thank you for taking my call. Thanks. Yes, uh, doctor, I don't know, help me with this one. Our boy, we discovered a horizontal and white bunch-like or tooth-like structure behind the gum. The first dentist could not ascertain what it is. The x-ray does not show it as a bone or as something that is coming from down from the tooth. 
But the last dentist that we have been to, we went to several specialists, is assuming that because our child sucks their, their fingers for a long time, it could have been uh, that pressure creating that whitish-like structure. It looks like a horizontal tip, like the size of four tips. Uh, could that be possible that the finger sucking is causing that thing? It's very hard, like a bone, like a tooth. Mm. And um, um, Chris has actually sent us a picture of this. It's so, it's so fascinating. Where, where on the jaw is the item? Can you just, um, can you just it's, tell it's me where, where the on the front, jaw? Where the front two teeth would be. Yes, right. Okay. I mean, it would be an unusual consequence of of thumb sucking because if you think about the number of people that do that, it's such a common habit. And I've not heard of anybody developing what looks like an ectopic tooth or at least ectopic tooth structure because of that. The the bottom line is everyone is different and everyone develops a bit differently. Sometimes teeth do develop abnormally. Sometimes bony structures develop abnormally. So a number of things that I think need to be investigated. One, it needs to be seen by someone who really knows about oral biology and anatomy. So someone who uh, is uh, a maxillofacial person who will know what this is. We need to know what the timeline over which it's occurred is. Is this a brand new thing that suddenly sprung up? Has it has it got there all of a sudden and is it getting bigger? Is it changing in some way or is it stable? It's always been there, but you've only just noticed it. That's important and needs to be uh, explored. And then you, you ask the question, well, could it be some kind of ectopic tooth structure? Could it be ectopic bone? Because sometimes people do develop bony prominences in, in certain parts of their body, and they can look like uh, you know, a bulge on a bone. And everybody has slightly different bone anatomy, so it could be any of those things. But it, if it's a new thing, if it's changing, it's evolving, it, prop- it needs to be investigated. and needs to be investigated properly to get to the bottom of what it is and whether it poses a risk or not. Are you willing to go and consult with a specialist, Chris? Yes, I've gone to a pediatric uh, specialist, pediatric dentist uh, in uh, Woodmead. They were surprised with it. They called a professor at a university to try and establish they have not come back to me. So it's like three or four dentists now. So would would you look at like a maxillo, um, a doctor, did you say it was a maxillofacial surgeon? Yeah, yeah. Some somebody who's an experienced in um, jaws and um, yes. bone anatomy around yes. the nose and face, who can look at this and also will know what sort of investigation, what what the best way is to image this, because ultimately imaging it uh, and possibly even biopsying it is going to be the right way to find out what this is, and also really clearly documenting what the history is. Has it always been there? Is it getting bigger? Is it changing in some way? Is the overlying gum or skin healthy or unhealthy? Is it ulcerating? Is it bleeding? Mm. Those kind of bits of the history are really critical to try to get to the bottom of what this is and then work out whether or not to reassure you or whether some kind of treatment or intervention is going to be needed. Mm. All right, Chris, I hope you're able to find a specialist there that can assist you. Uh, More questions on the WhatsApp line from Anthony who says, please could Dr. Chris explain how the color coding uh, originated with electrical wires, example, blue for neutral, brown for live and green for earth. And if there is a variance in voltage. Well, the answer is that that is not the standard we used to have. And if you go to older properties in the UK, for example, although we're using things like brown for live, blue for neutral and a green earth flashed wire for earth these days, 
historically, people had brown and red. And before that, they didn't even bother with colour coding because when people began to use AC, alternating current electricity, which they embraced pretty early on because Nikola Tesla, who was a pioneer of electricity and electricity distribution, pointed out the advantages of AC, then in an AC circuit, if you're just taking the wires off the generator, then you have no plus and minus. You've got two wires which are opposite polarity to each other. So you could take one of them and call it plus and take one of them and call it negative. The way you actually wire these things up, though, is that once once you've got a, a wiring loom in a house, you will take the one that you're notionally calling neutral and you bond that to earth. So the neutral line in your house is always connected to earth and the live is the live above that earth that you then call the brown wire. But the answer is by having a unified color scheme that everyone uses, it's much safer because then everyone knows what what wire does what in the same way that each pipe has a red or a blue for hot or cold. It tells everyone who comes along from a service background what color, uh, what is in that pipe or what is in that wire. So it's much safer if everyone's got a unified agreed terminology. And so it doesn't actually matter what the voltage is it's still using the same convention. So, for instance, I was working building, rebuilding a generator at the weekend. It's wired for 110 volts, which you'd find on building sites, but also in America, and uh, 240 volts, which you routinely find domestically in the UK. And you use the same color scheme, but you know that brown is going to be the live hot wire and blue is going to be the earth-bonded neutral line. And the flashed green and yellow is going to be earth. And it, that convention is a relatively recent one, because of necessity of safety because if people come along and they know when they open up a wire whether they're playing with the neutral or the live it could be the difference between life and death mm. which is why these standards are really important all right um let's go to the lines we have susan and Reimser. hi susan hello doctor just a quick call on a flight to cape town only on flights do my ankles my feet get swollen even though I wear the airflate socks. Can you please help me and explain? Hi, Susan. The reason that we get ankle swelling usually is because of immobility. When you go on a flight, you're stuck there for absolutely ages, not moving. You're in uh, an upright posture in a chair, and it's not comfortable to move around to change posture and what that has the effect of doing is applying a big, what we call hydrostatic pressure on your veins. Yeah. The veins return blood from your tissues towards your core and up to your heart. And when you're sitting upright, you've got a very high column of water, about at least half a meter to a meter long between your ankle and your core. And that's yeah. pushing fluid the wrong way back down your veins. The way that veins normally move fluid back up them isn't because of much pressure. Veins are at very low pressure. It's actually because you have what they call in physiology a vis at ergo, a force from behind. Veins have valves in them, and when you move and, and contract a muscle, muscles become shorter and fatter, and veins yeah. are therefore squeezed between the muscles. And because the veins have valves, you can only move the blood in one direction because when it flows against the valve, it forces it shut. So it's easier for the pressure to move the fluid in the other direction. And so it's movement that moves most fluid back in veins when we're upright or sitting down. And because we're restricting movement on air aircraft, that is the main player. 
The other more minor contributor is that the cabin of an aircraft, while pressurised, is still at a slightly lower pressure than when you were out and about uh, walking around at ground level. And so there's also less pressure from outside across the skin pushing in on the tissue, which means there's more space potentially in the tissue for fluid to accumulate, so that will also play a part. So the two effects, but the dominant one being immobility and not using your muscle pump as much, or what means that you get more pooling of fluid in your dependent tissues, otherwise known as edema. Thank you so much for that, Susan in Reimsa. We've got a voice note, Doctor. Good afternoon, Lebu and the Naked Scientist. How does this happen? When driving a vehicle at 120 kilometers an hour, you've got your windows closed. Then there is a fly which is flying around the car inside. It can still trace its destination. It can still fly from point A to point B without being affected by the speed of the car. How does this happen? Mm, Nice one. The reason, yeah, the reason for this is that the car and you and the air inside the car can all be considered as one unit. Because the air inside the car is separated from the air outside, when the car moves, the window at the back of the car pushes on the air inside the car and accelerates it forward at the same rate as the car. So once the car's built up speeds to 60, 70 miles an hour, about 100 to 120 kilometers an hour, the air and the car and the people in the car are all considered as one unit, all moving at the same speed, but relative to each other, they're not moving at all. And so as the fly then accelerates itself, it moves relative to the air around it, so it can move from the back of the car to the front. And it's similar to another way of thinking about this is, well, if I'm on a boat and I'm sailing along in the water, if the tide is moving in one direction and I'm sailing in the other direction, how do I still make headway? And it's because the boat is moving against the tide and a bit faster than the tide that the boat still goes along. So in this instance, and and you could also turn that round and say, well, if the boat sails with the tide, the boat now is going faster than just the tide alone or the boat alone because the two effects add together. So the fly is in the car, the air is in the car, the air is moving with the car, the fly is moving over the air or through the air that's in the car, which relative to the fly, when the fly wasn't moving, was stationary. I hope that makes sense. Wow, what an interesting explanation. I actually never thought about that. But now that you asked the question, I was like, that's a very, very good one. I see we've been contacted uh, by a maxillofacial surgeon, uh, well, a dentist who works at Tembisa Hospital, who has a colleague that is a maxillofacial surgeon who has uh, uh, offered to assist the previous caller with the issue of the tooth. So let's see how it is that we can connect them and help them out. Thank you so much, of course, to all of you 702 listeners as always being able to walk the talk. The last question, uh, doctor, that came through was about uh, diabetes, saying that when you have diabetes, you take insulin to reduce the blood sugar. Where does this sugar in the blood end then? Well, when someone has diabetes, they have either no insulin if they have type 1 diabetes or not, or not enough insulin if they have type 2 diabetes. And either way, We aim to increase the insulin signal so that you can then tell the body's tissues, pick up the glucose. And when a cell sees insulin going around in the bloodstream, it turns on on the cell a transporter. 
cells are equipped with a, a transporter system which grabs glucose on one side, the outside of the cell, and pulls it into the cell using energy in the process. And once the glucose is in the cell, there are enzymes in the cell called hexokinases, which add a phosphate onto the glucose and make glucose 6-phosphate. And this lodges the glucose inside the cell and then feeds it into metabolism so that it can't actually then leave the cell again. So that in this way, you move the glucose out of the bloodstream and inside the cells that, that can pick up glucose, and then they, they convert the glucose into a process that can be used by metabolism to produce energy. And if there's a surfeit of energy in the cell, then they turn the glucose into molecules that can be used to make fats because sugar can be used to build up fat, which is why if you eat loads of sugar, you will put on weight and you put on weight in the form of fat because metabolism converts sugar into fats. Doctor, we're going to have to leave it there because we've run out of time. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist.